Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Detroit Red Wings podcast, Octopulse. I'm assistant sports editor Mark Faulkner at the Detroit News, and I'm joined by our Red Wings beat reporter Ted Colfin. We're up in the press box at Little Caesars Arena before the Detroit-Vegas game on Sunday. Ted, you're back after a rare night off on Friday, and it was a rare win for the Red Wings. Isn't that something? I wonder if somebody was paying attention over here or something. They're going to want me out of here at all. But, no, that was a badly needed victory. I mean, obviously, this team's confidence at Psyche was so fragile at that point. Um but you know what? You can almost see it coming. They've played well against the Bruins for the last year or two. I just think they played scared a little bit, maybe, and I don't know, everything worked out well. And what a what a debut by Robbie Fabry. Let's hear now from Robbie Fabry, who scored two goals in his Detroit debut. He was acquired from the Blues for Jacob De La Rose. Fabry's had two major knee surgeries, but he says he's healthy now. No, I'm past those. Those were a couple years ago now, and uh, you know I feel great out there. It's not even in my in my mind, you know, when I'm playing, um, and I feel good. Ted, I watched uh, Fabry in the OHL. He was a top-ranked prospect in 2012. The number one pick in the OHL was Connor McDavid of Erie, and Fabry went number six to Guelph, and of course he and Tyler Bertuzzi went on to win an OHL championship. By the way, that same year in the OHL, Brendan Perlini was the 16th pick. Now, Eiserman has gone ahead now and acquired Fabry and Perlini, first-round picks. What do you make of those trades? No-risk trades, really. I mean, none of them have exact, other than Larkin, obviously, none of them have exactly flourished in the NHL. Perlini's on his third team, Fabry's on his second. For what they had to give up, I mean, it's not. It's a no-risk gamble. If they produced anything, obviously, it's great for the Red Wings organization. If not, nothing really lost. Um, obviously, uh, uh, the Fabry kid has some upside. Talking to people, obviously, he just lost his spot, obviously, in St. Louis on that roster. But he's got a lot of talent, got a lot of skill. Why not? Now, on Saturday, you were at practice, and Dylan Larkin called that a real emotional victory who would you play with Larkin would you still keep the top line together oh yeah I mean yeah. they've played so well I mean I don't think you're gonna put Fabry up there at any anytime soon or Perlini or now the top lines played well but at least now they have a semblance of a second line it looks like we'll see I mean it was a, one game but it was yeah. definitely gives a lot of people some hope after what they saw the last 13 games pre prior now, Friday night, the Wings had a season-high 27 hits. And I know hits we've talked about can be subjective. Is a hit away from the play important? How about an angling out, which isn't counted? But still, Detroit's five wins this year have come with some of their best hit games and blocked shots. So the Wings had 27 hits. You throw in the 15 blocked shots. And the only other game they did better was the game that you were at, Ted, in Montreal when they had 24 hits, 21 block shots, you added up, it's 45. 
they're just numbers, but th that does speak to what Steve Eisman talked about. Not only skill, but that compete level. And right. that might be a factor. What do you think? I did, talking with Mickey Redmond on the elevator up here. Mickey, and then we both agreed. I think they just played scared. I mean, you saw it against Edmonton, too. When you're playing against McDavid and Dreisaitl, you don't want... You don't want to be embarrassed. You know they have, the other team has the capability of just taking you, taking you apart. I thought they played focused. They played to their system. They they were aggressive. I mean, they didn't back down against the Bruins. We saw that with Heronic and Mar Brad March Marshad. They they did every they played scared. They did everything they needed to do to win. Yeah. Now, but they got to come back tonight and win again, or otherwise that mean or that victory means nothing. Ted, do you think Eiserman is done trading for a while? The trade deadline's not until February, but... I think we're going to see it all the way <laughs> for the next couple of years. I mean, I think he's shuffling players through. He's to a certain extent. He wants to see what he has here. Uh, these low-risk trades, I mean, there's nothing wrong with yeah. them. I mean, he might as well shake it up, especially getting some of these young kids who still have a lot of potential. For, for players who don't have a future here, we're like Della Rose and whatnot. I think we're gonna keep on seeing stuff like this for the time being. Before the game, I talked to uh, Darren Millard about Iserman. Millard does TV work for Vegas. He's the uh, former host of NHL Central at noon, and he has his own podcast, The Chirp. He says Iserman might be the most low-key, behind-the-scenes GM in the league. It was the same in, in, in Tampa. He wasn't the most You'd see him going for runs. Very rarely did you ever get a chance to to sit down and, and talk with him, or even just casually, uh, off the record, and 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 shoot the shoot the breeze with him. Uh, not many people can get away with that. Right. And uh, when when you've got the resume of, of Steve Eisenman, and uh, you can you can choose to to structure your day, uh, handle your job uh in in a unique way and 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 he does that he might be um this will sound weird he might be the lowest profile general manager in the nhl at least when you when you discuss visibility and availability yeah he's obviously high, he's very high profile he's he's a hockey hall of famer but when you look at just how much you see and hear from him he 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 might be on the lowest of the of the 31 gms Ted, when do you think Eiserman will address the media next? He doesn't really have to. You talked to him during training camp and before the season began, but do the fans need to hear from Steve Eiserman as long as they're doing okay on the ice? It's a different situation, obviously. Yeah, Kenny Holland was available every day at whatever whim. Um, Steve does his own way. I mean, he does it his own way. He treats the addresses the media at certain points, it seems like. Uh, at this point, he hasn't talked to us since training camp, but I'm available and whenever we need him, whatnot, off the record. I would expect some, at some point soon we'll hear from him. I think we got our bets at the trade deadline. I think that's a possibility, but I'm sure he'll address this soon. Do the fans, I think the fans deserve some comment, sure, about some of these people. I think that might happen here at some point. Okay, let's take a, a bit of a break now. We'll hear from John Kelly. He's the play-by-play -play announcer with the Stanley Cup champion St. Louis Blues, but he was also the Colorado Avalanche broadcaster for the Darren McCarty, Claude Lemieux brawl at Joe Louis Arena on March 26, 1997. You're listening to Octopulse, Episode 6. Coming up next, we'll hear from John Kelly. 
We're joined now by St. Louis TV play-by-play announcer John Kelly. John, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. A lot of hockey fans will probably remember your father, Dan Kelly, a Hockey Hall of Famer, really the voice of the NHL for generations of U.S. fans, Michigan fans, Canadian fans, and full disclosure, we were just talking, John, that my dad gave your father his first on-air job in Smith Falls back in the 50s. Small world, my dad was the uh, news director at CJET, a small station outside of Ottawa. Your dad would have been, John, maybe 19 or 20. And I think your dad was working like behind the scenes, like a lot of us, like engineering jobs. And then my dad gave him his first on-air job. I think your dad had left a resume and my dad pulled it out. And I never asked my dad about this, but I've since read that I think your dad had to take like a $60 a month pay decrease to go on air, but that certainly is coming full circle. And now, and now of course, you've you followed in his footsteps. Yeah, I did not know that story, Mark. And um, I, I guess from my family's uh, perspective, we thank you and your family very much because, you know, my dad was uh, um, a young announcer when, when he, he got his first job, as you said. He was probably around 19. He didn't go to college. And... His his older brother was a broadcaster, Hal Kelly. So that's how he got the broadcasting bug. And I know that he loved sports and loved the game of hockey. And to start at a small radio station in Smith Falls and have him be hired by your dad is um, it's incredible. And um, I think every person needs a break or a chance to hone their skills and develop their skills. And the fact that your dad gave my father his first on-air job is pretty incredible. It really is. And I think of the person who gave me my first chance, John. It was a high school teacher, Bill Van Wick, who saw that I could string a few sentences together. I was reading a lot. So he sent me down to the Windsor radio station, CKWW. Can you remember yourself, John, maybe somebody who took a chance on you at first? Yeah, um... I went to college and then I got a job out of college in Kansas in a small town called Pratt and I was there eight months and then my father um, knew Don Wallace who was the head of Hockey Night in Canada at the time and and Don told my dad that there was a job in the American Hockey League the Leafs Farm Club the St. Catherine Saints that needed a play-by-play guy because Jimmy Houston had moved up to do Leaf TV so Don told me about the job and my dad, and I applied, and there was a gentleman at the radio station in St. Catharines by the name of Pat Kiley um, at CKTB in St. Catharines, and Pat is the one that listened to my tape, and amazingly enough, Mark, he actually flew down <laughs> to Pratt, Kansas, which literally is in the middle of Kansas, right. from St. Catharines to meet me and interview me. And as it turns out, I got the job. So I, if I had to say there was one person that took a chance on me because I had very little experience, sure. yeah. it was Pat Kiley from CKTV in St. Catharines. Oh, that's interesting. You know, your dad would listen to some of my on-air tapes as well. I'd be up at Joe Lewis Arena up in the fifth floor, and there was a broadcast booth above the Red Wings net, a sound booth in the corner where I would practice. And your dad would go over the tapes. He was generous and kind. And we would talk a bit about the way your dad educated 
the St. Louis fans, the American fans with the expansion blues. And just one example, John, your dad would say, you know, I would try and set the scene about who was on the ice, like a lot of announcers do. But he also would say, this happens, which allows this to happen. So there was sort of like, it wasn't random. Does that make sense? He kind of tried to tie everything in together to give you that sense of what a hockey game felt like and sounded like. Yeah, he was uh, he was a great teacher. And he understood that when he came to St. Louis, he actually came the second year. A lot of people think he was the original announcer, but he wasn't. It was actually the late, great Jack Buck who was the first Blues announcer in the first year, and then my dad came the second year. So he knew that, by and large, the hockey fans in St. Louis did not know the game of hockey, the National Hockey League, the players, things like that. So he and Gus Kyle were the teachers, and they did a fantastic job. Uh, my dad was there for 21 years, and uh, Gus was, was there for probably 15 of those 21. And, um, yeah, I, I think that he educated a lot of people as a matter of fact if i had a dollar mark for every fan that came up to me in my lifetime and said i listened to your father when i was young in my bed at night with a transistor radio listening to the blues at night falling asleep if i had a dollar for every fan that told me that i'd be rich trust me every fan because back then very few games were on tv every game was on radio in the early days, every game started at 8 o'clock. So for young people laying in bed at night, they probably couldn't listen to the whole game. So, yeah, that's, you know, he educated and and he he turned so many people into blues fans and hockey fans, and that is a great tribute to any broadcaster. Your dad and I went over one of his most famous goals, 1987 Canada Cup. Now, you said you've heard this clip thousands of times. Let's play it for our fans who may not be as familiar with your dad's work. Here's the goal, Canada versus Russia, tied 5-5 in the third period. So, John, what's interesting about that with your dad was he said he could see the play develop, and of course, with that amazing voice, and he was able to build it up right away. I think it went from Lemieux to Gretzky. It was like a three-on-one, and what was interesting, what your dad said, was there was another player on the Larry right, Murphy. Larry Murphy, who's now with the Red Wings here, And but your dad said, I knew the puck wasn't going to him. So, in your dad's mind, it was going from Gretzky to Lemieux in the slot, and he was able to build it up. And then, of course, his patented call, he shoots, he scores. But maybe you could talk to me about that goal. Um, one of the greatest games probably ever. Well, as a matter of fact, I think those three games in that Canada Cup, the final three games, were three of the best games ever played that I have ever seen. And the third and deciding game was was classic. And I think that when you, when you, when you look at my dad's you know, long history of great calls. And if you're going to include calls, you have to throw in the Bobby Orr goal, of course, in 1970. But to me, this goal here summed up what my dad did best. I think it was his greatest call ever. In terms of the the moment and the players involved and the way he built up the goal, as you said, the, the crescendo-like 
um, effect in his voice, and he did it very economically with his words. If you listen to the goal call, he didn't say a whole lot as the puck moved up the ice, but, you know, as you said, he knew the game of hockey. He could see the play developing. He knew where the puck was going, and he knew where the puck was going to end up. So I think that if you look at the totality of the of the moment and the goal, it was his greatest call ever. Now, one year later after that, John, 1988, I wasn't aware of this, but you got a chance to broadcast a game with your dad. It was the Blues' first win over the Flyers, the Broad Street Bully Flyers, since 1972. What do you remember about that broadcast? Well, I remember a lot. My father was diagnosed with cancer in late October of 88, and I was actually doing... Um, some New York Ranger games that year. I was still in the American League with Adirondack, the Red Wings farm team, and I, I got the job as Marv Elbert's backup announcer. So I did about 45, 50 games for the Rangers, and the Blues had a game in Philadelphia, and it happened to fall two days after the Rangers played there. So my dad called me up and said, John, why don't you stay and see me? Um, we'll get some time to spend together, and I did. And I remember it so vividly. It was the only game I ever broadcast with my dad. And, you know, he was going through his treatment, um, chemotherapy and, and radiation. So he was already, you know, getting weak. And I remember him walking up the stairs to the broadcast booth, Mark, because there wasn't an elevator to the old uh, press box at the Spectrum. And he would walk up, um, you know, 10 steps and take a break walk up another 10 because he couldn't go all the way and you know that's how weakened he was but you know the, the, the greatest part was I got to broadcast with him and as you said it was their first win since uh, their infamous brawl in the stands at the Spectrum as you said in 72 they had been like winless in 34 games in that building and they won that night and I brought, I did the play-by-play -play of the second period, and he did the color. So it's certainly a, a lasting memory. And let's just quickly um, talk about your career. Red Wing fans might be interested in, you were with the Colorado Avalanche when they won the Cups in 96 in 2001, and the Red Wings won theirs in 97-98. What was it like? Our podcast is about Steve Eiserman and the 11 years as captain that he had to wait 14 years overall John but 11 years the longest length of time of a, of a continuous captain to win the cup so I'm wondering what are your thoughts about Iserman and it was Fedorov and then Foote against Shanahan Sackick Forsberg how about Iserman in those years the battles between the two teams well I think that if you were to compare the careers of Joe Sackick and Steve Iserman it would be really hard to say you know, who had the better career. Both Hall of Famers, obviously fantastic players. And, you know, Steve is from Ottawa, where I'm from. He's great friends with my partner, Darren Pang. Um, I have the utmost respect for Steve as a person and as a, as a hockey player. Um, what I remember about those days is that, to me, it was the best rivalry I've ever seen. I mean, Colorado and, and Detroit, as we know, they hated each other. Um, they both knocked each other off in the playoffs when the other team thought they were going to win the Cup. Uh, I think if the, it wasn't for the other team, both Detroit and Colorado would have won many more Cups. Uh, I firmly believe that. Uh, you know, the Avalanche won two. Detroit, um, they, as you said, they won in 02 and 97 and 98. Um, so I think that, to me, 
in, in my lifetime, in my career, it was by far the best rivalry I've seen. I'd also be interested in your perspective on the McCarty-Lemieux uh, game at Joe Louis Arena. We've heard the call from the Detroit standpoint. Were you doing the call I for that game, game yeah. John? Yeah. I did the game with Peter McNabb, and that game um, is one of the most memorable games I've ever called. And obviously, from Colorado's perspective, it wasn't a positive. They had a big lead in the game. Um, then McCarty jumped Lemieux. I think we agree he jumped him <laughs> and bloodied him. And then Detroit came back and won in overtime. But I remember that, that whole 48-hour sequence so well. The Avalanche had played the night before, I believe, in Washington. We flew in to Detroit that night after the game. And we had a police escort to the hotel in Greektown. And the next day, there was a constant police presence around the hotel in the Detroit papers the next day the day of the game it was basically Lemieux's picture with a wanted you know headline on it there was blood in the air you could smell blood in the air the night of the game and you knew it was going to happen and it did happen and it changed I think it changed the way that Detroit felt they could deal with the avalanche because the year before of course Colorado had beaten them so I think it really galvanized the Red Wings and of course they went on to win the Stanley Cup that year and finally now that you're with the Blues a Stanley Cup champion in Blues what are your thoughts about what it takes to to get to that next level what allowed the Blues to win last year uh, was a couple of things great goaltending uh, Jordan Bennington came in on January 7th and was lights out and they were a four-line team, great defense, they defended really well, and they wore teams down. So it wasn't one thing, it was a combination of things, and I think, I think every Stanley Cup champion, you know, they have a lot of reasons why they're champions, and the Blues did, but I think the biggest thing was that they were a really deep team, and they really physically wore teams out in those seven-game series. John, I want to thank you for your time, for sharing some of the memories of you and your dad. I know it's a busy night. Thanks for your time today, John. Thanks for having me, Mark. So, Ted, there's John Kelly coming up. The Wings head out west for games Tuesday in Anaheim, Thursday in L.A., Saturday in San Jose. That California road trip used to be really tough, but the Kings have won only five times, San Jose seven. The Wings are at five wins going into tonight. You know what, Mark? They have a chance to get some points here. I mean, as silly as it sounds in a way looking at their record, there's a possibility there to grab some points. The Kings aren't playing particularly well, obviously. Anaheim has been off and on, and San Jose is still trying to find traction. Look, I mean, if they can get three or, I think there's a potential there for three or four points, but obviously they have to play up to that level they did Friday night, and uh, we'll see. I mean, it's usually, that's usually another tough road trip for them. And then our next podcast will be back here against the Five Wins Senators. So our next podcast will be November the 19th. Later this week, we'll have our Red Wings Report TV show with John Neo and yourself, and maybe Wojo filling in for John, so that's looking at the wings at the 20 game mark one quarter of the way through the season you can also check out our new red wings facebook page with our grand rapids report wings videos photo galleries so ted until next tuesday have a good week we'll see you then you too my friend